Philly Bible. Good to be back with you this morning. It's good to be out fishing with the men last week. Uh, I missed being in the pulpit with you, though. You know, this, I don't know if you know this or not, but the great privilege of my life is being able to open God's Word with you every week and being able to talk about the Lord and about uh, worshiping Him and about how the, the Spirit of God works in our lives uh, through the Word and through prayer. And, uh, and this is a real privilege for me. Uh, I hope it's a privilege for you to listen. Um, at least sometimes I hope that it is in any case. Uh, but this is, this is great stuff to be able to do this. Uh, I, I, I never feel God's pleasure more than when I, when I am in the pulpit with you, with you. So uh, we're going to be jumping into a new study this morning. Uh, we're going to leave the cross, uh, at least looking at um, the cross from a theological perspective behind for just a little bit. Uh, and we're going to be looking at Abraham. We're going to go back to Abraham uh, and watch him die. And then we're going to uh, move on and transition into the next generation of Abraham's family. Uh, Abraham, remember, is the person that God called out of Ur of the Chaldees to form a, a brand new nation of people through whom the Messiah was going to come. And so this is part of the story of how God begins to bring redemption into the world through a particular people. And... Uh, Abraham's the founder of the Jewish nation to whom God made promises of, I'll give you this land and I'll give you my blessing and I'll protect you. And, and also I will bring the blessing of the Messiah to the entire world through you and your family. And we saw Abraham's story go uh, in its ups and in its downs. And uh, he has moments of great faith and moments of great faithlessness. And we're going to just continue on with that story. We're going to be looking at um, we're going to be looking at Isaac and his sons Jacob and Esau. And believe it or not, uh, these stories about this family and these men have something to teach us. Even though they lived a very long time ago, uh, about four thousand years ago is when these men lived. But they have something to teach us today about walking with God according to his promises and covenant with us as well. And sometimes, as we'll see, uh, for example, this morning, they teach us not through positive example, but through negative example. And not all of the things that, that people did in the Bible, believe it or not, this may shock you to know this, but not everything that is in the Bible is written as a positive example. You should do like they did. That's not always the case. There are people who try to misapply the Scripture that way, but sometimes the reason these stories are recorded is to tell us, don't do this, not imitate this. So just because something is in the Bible doesn't mean it's a positive example for us to repeat. Uh, We can learn also from negative examples. And I want to just tell you that I also learned a lesson in humility this week. Uh, because uh, I messed up the preaching calendar that I keep, and I only gave Katie an outline for the bulletin, and it begins at verse 12. But actually, we're going to begin at verse 1, because as I was doing my study, I realized I never preached verse 1 to 11. I kind of skipped that. So uh, I want to go through those with you. But 
As we are starting off here, I want to just ask you a question. And let me, let me ask it this way, and I'll just put this out there and let you think on this. And we're going to come back to it periodically through this message. But let me ask you this question. What are you willing to sacrifice? What are you willing to sacrifice in order to satisfy your desires? What are you willing to sacrifice in order to, to satisfy your desires? Uh, now, let that roll around in your brain, and I'll give you an example. I did not do this yesterday uh, for the purposes of a sermon illustration, trust me. But I, because it fits, I'm going to use this as an illustration. Uh, this is my medal yesterday, my participant medal from the mini marathon in Indianapolis. Okay. Um, I did indeed finish 13.1 miles and hated the last three. <laughs> um, had a good time for the first 10 miles and thought I was literally going to die or sincerely hoping I would for the last three. Uh, but I made it all the way, uh, 13.1 miles. Do not ask me my time. It's not about time. It's about finishing. <laughs> um, but, uh, but it took me a lot longer than I planned. Um, and uh, my, I'll just tell you this, that my goal next time is to finish under two hours instead of over two hours um, uh, on that. But in any case, I use this, I, I want to just bring this up, uh, not because I'm excited that I finished, although I am, but to say this, that one of the things that when you both train for and participate in a race like that is the race is long and it feels like agony at points. But what you have to learn how to do is to say no to your body and its desires in order to achieve a greater objective and to accomplish a, a, a bigger, more significant goal. In my case, I'll tell you, I had two things happen this week that were both exciting. One was I finished this race, which is great, but the other was earlier in the week I'd had an appointment with my gastroenterologist. Um, and those of you who know me, know that I have Crohn's disease and have had since I was 16. And what he's telling me is that my health is actually going back the other direction. And I'm, it's improving instead of getting worse, which is great, right? Um, you know, my liver enzymes are down and my kidney function is up and everything is actually going better than it should be given that I'm 22 years into this disease and all that kind of thing. You know, it helps that I'm down 40 pounds and have run a thousand miles since. <laughs> but, uh, but in any case, you know, there's a significant aspect of this that involves saying no to your body and its desires and what you, at uh, certain very important aspects of your personhood, want in order to achieve those kinds of goals. You know, my doctor doesn't want to see me for another six months, which is great. Uh, the longer I go between visits to that guy, the happier I am. <laughs> okay. Um, but I want you to think about that, about learning how to say no to your desires and what you might want or what might be even a good desire as we look at these stories. So first one here, chapter 25, beginning in verse 1. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimram, Jokshan, Madon, 
Midian, Ishbak, and Shua, and Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dadan, and the sons of Dadan were Asherim, Letushim, and Lumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abidah, and Eldah, and all these were the children of Keturah. And Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac east, eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. And Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in a cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites, where Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. And after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. And these are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. And these are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaiot, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Abdil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadad, Tima, Jeter, Naphish, and Kedemah. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. And they settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria, and he settled over against all his kinsmen. Now, the reason I go through that is not simply because I want to help out you parents who are expecting another child and maybe want to find some new names uh, to uh, argue about, but because we want to find out, first of all, what happened with Abraham? How did his life wind up? But also learn some lessons here because there are some here even in this passage. And what we see is that Abraham was not content after Sarah's death. He married another woman, uh, Keturah, and he had six sons by her. And, at, 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 and when you think about Abraham's age at the time, um, that must have had a lot to do with the special blessing of God on Abraham's life. <laughs> because what you see here and through some of the later history is that these descendants of Abraham, these particular ones, become part of the godless pagans who fight against Israel. Uh, in fact, the tribe of Midian, if you know your later history of Israel from the book of Numbers, what you'll see is the tribe of Midian hi hires a false prophet named Balaam to lead Israel into pagan idolatry. And because of the idolatry that they're involved in, 23,000 of the people of God are struck dead by plague because of the, their involvement with the women of Midian. And, it's put a, and, and Phinehas, the son of Aaron, puts a stop to it by driving a spear through a couple of these idolatrous people. And, in fact, later when they're in the land, it's, if you remember the, the story of Gideon, remember, with the torches and the pots and the 300 guys surrounding the encampment, it's the people of Midian that are oppressing Israel that they need to be delivered from. These are part of the pagan tribes that fight against and become enemies of Israel. And 
Abraham's seed was all blessed, but it was the children of the covenant that he had with, with God through Sarah, with Isaac. Those were the children that were supposed to be blessed, and those are the children that were supposed to be there. And all of the other children that he had, whether with Keturah or with Hagar, become a problem and a snare for the people who are descended as the children of promise. And Abraham evidently knew, in fact, that 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 would happen, which is why when he, he was about to die, he gave all of his stuff to his son Isaac, but then he took the the concubines and their children and sent them away, which is another way of saying he divorced those women and sent them off to the east because he wanted them to have a to have a, a separation between the people who were going to be part of the covenant people through Isaac and the people the other people. And write this down. If, you're, if you are looking for lessons here from Abraham's life, here's one. Polygamy is always a bad idea. Okay? Now, I, I know I wouldn't normally have to underline that, but occasionally people say, well, you know, people in the Bible had more than one wife. Let me just tell you, every time you meet a person in the Bible who has more than one wife, it is a bad idea. Because there is always, underline this, always warfare between the various half-brothers and sons that get involved in this. And that's true whether you're talking about Abraham, whether you're talking about Jacob that we're going to see later in this book, whether you're talking about David, whether you're talking about Solomon. Whoever you're talking about, this is always a mess from a family perspective, from a uh, personal peace and happiness perspective. It's a mess every single cotton-picking time. I know there are some folks in our society right now who think, you know, all kinds of people are getting married in our society and we're sanctifying all kinds of relationships. Why not polygamy? This is why not. Because first of all, God says, in the beginning, God created them male and female. And he brought them together, a man and a woman. And he gave them to each other, one for one. And that works. Any other permutation you can come up with is bad and does not work and leads to to strife, leads to all kinds of problems. Uh, But here's the other thing. Abraham, and I want to be careful about how I say this, but for the sake of his desires and drives... Abraham puts the covenant of God and the people of God physically at risk. Because remember, Isaac is one of the younger sons. Ishmael's older. Ishmael's already an adult man by the time that uh, Isaac is in grade school. And, And so... Abraham knows that he's going to have to send these women and their sons physically away from his son Isaac because if they band together, they will overwhelm and overpower him. But he's putting, literally, putting the covenant of God at at risk for the sake of satisfying his desires. 
And that's a bad idea. He is willing to sacrifice eternal blessing from God for some temporary pleasures. And that's wrong. Text doesn't say, and Abraham, what Abraham had done displeased the Lord, but what you see later on through the story is that this was a very, very bad idea. And then you get some description here of Ishmael and his generations, verses 12 to 18, which I read earlier. And what you hear about is you meet these descendants. Uh, and, and Ishmael, what you find is that in accordance with the prophecy that, that God gave to Abraham and to Hagar, that, that just as God had told Abraham, uh, that's Genesis, um, Genesis chapter 17, God told Abraham he's going to become a nation of 12 tribes. And he told Hagar, this man and his descendants are going to live in hostility toward all of their brothers and toward all of one another. They're going to be in fighting. And this passage tells us that's exactly what happened, that there were 12 sons, became 12 tribes, and they lived in hostility against one another and against everybody else. These people, along with the sons of Keturah, become the Arab peoples of the world. And when I say the words Middle East, what do you think? <laughs> Not just Arabs, but what else? What you, when I say the Middle East, the next word is conflict, <laughs> right? Uh, and it has, since the birth of Ishmael, always been that way. Always. In fulfillment of God's prophecy about those, about those people. Now, one day, Jesus will reign over them as over all of the nations of the world, and there will be peace everywhere. But at the moment, these folks live in hostility toward one another and toward the rest of the world, just as God had said that they would. Now, you meet some other characters beginning in verse 19, uh, Jacob and Esau, and uh, we'll read about them here. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And the children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, the two pe and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb, and the first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. And afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. And when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. 
And Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. And thus Esau despised his birthright. Now, within the next generation, there are some promising signs and there are some real problems. Right off the bat, you see that Rebekah has trouble getting pregnant, just like Sarah did. And again, this is hardly a good sign for a family that God has told is going to one day be a great nation because it's trouble to, you have problems having a great nation when the one legitimate descendant of the covenant does not have any children with his wife. But there's also a different approach that's taken by Isaac to solving that problem, which is good. And it's this, that Isaac chooses, rather than like Abraham, his father, come up with some alternate scheme, he decides he's going to rely on the Lord. And he prays, and in response to his prayer, the Lord opens Rebekah's womb. And by the way, he apparently prays for a long time because Isaac is 40 when he marries Rebekah. And how old is he? Did you notice in the text? He's 60 when she has the boys. So he was faithful in prayer for a long time, 20 years intervening in between those things. And by the way, God is still the God who opens and closes the womb. I do not know why some women find it easy to conceive and others uh, struggle, but I do know that God is still the God who rules over and, and is sovereign over even these most intimate areas and details of our lives. And so we have to trust him whatever the outcome, right? I know for some women, Mother's Day is deeply painful every time it comes around because all they think about is their empty arms that they would like to have. And other women go, you know, I get pregnant doing my husband's laundry. <laughs> okay. Uh, and the reality of it is, is that, you know, you read those passages about blessed is the man whose quiver is full of children. And some people think, you know, God has blessed us right into poverty. <laughs> And other people are like, man, if I could only have some children, I don't know why God makes people's quivers different sizes. Okay? What I do know is, is it's the Lord who controls this kind of thing. And uh, Isaac prays for his wife, and eventually she conceives. But again, there's a problem because these two boys are wrestling in the womb. Can you imagine what that must have been like? I mean, we only had one child at a time. And I can remember when Karen was expecting with our kids, she'd be like, oh, I got, a, I got feet right here in my rib and it hurts. You know, these two boys are going at one another from the womb. I don't know what that's like, but she is disturbed about it. And she goes to the, seek the Lord again, which is great. She goes and she seeks the Lord. She has a problem and she does the right thing. She goes to the Lord and says, What's up with this? And she hears from him that these two boys are going to be two nations. They're going to grow up and become two countries. Uh, like Isaac and Ishmael, their, their nations are going to be divided with the older one being ruled by the younger one. 
And in the course of time, the, the boys are born, and they couldn't be any more different. And one is red and hairy everywhere. It says like a hairy cloak. <laughs> I don't know what that looks like, but, you know, hairy every place. And, um, and so they named the boy a name that sounds like the word for red and hairy. Uh, which is Esau. You know, if you've ever been to the South, you've met some men with a name like this, okay? Hi, this is my friend. This is Red, okay? Um, or if you watch TV, you know, public channel, you got Red Green on there, right? Remember, I'm pulling for you. We're all in this together, right? Uh, if women don't find you handsome, at least they'll find you handy, right? Uh, all those kinds of things, right? Red, green. Um, and the other boy is smooth-skinned and born clutching his brother's heel. So he's named Jacob, which sounds like in Hebrew the noun for heel and the, the verb for to catch or to watch from behind. And later we'll see that you, you get out of these names with Jacob another sort of meaning, which basically is um, not to watch from behind, but you better watch. You're behind around Jacob, <laughs> okay, because he is going to grab your heel to trip you up. And the birth of these boys is a blessing because whereas Abraham only had one son, Isaac is blessed with two. But the seeds of warfare are sown even in the family, even while they're growing up. Because what you see is that the, the parents pick favorites. Again, another very bad idea. And Rebecca loves Jacob. He's described as a quiet man who dwells in tents, uh, which is probably a nice way of saying he's a little bit of a mama's boy. He's, a, he's the great indoorsman, <laughs> right? And, um, and it may also have something to do with the fact that Rebecca has been told that he's the one who's eventually going to rule and be given the covenant by God. So maybe she loves him a little more for that reason too. But regardless, that favoritism between these parents sows the seeds that later splits the family. And Isaac is also culpable because what does he do? He loves Esau more because he likes wild game dinners. And Esau, as a skillful hunter, provides a lot of those. And so what we see is that something as simple as food, which is food a good thing? Yes. Okay, food is a good thing. It's not bad. But he elevates having his belly satisfied with the meat he likes over peace and love and tranquility in his home. And he honors this boy more than his brother and his brother notices and that favoritism sows some seeds that bear some pretty terrible fruit later on, as we'll see. And in fact, it doesn't take that long because Jacob is out there in the tents and he's plotting the day when, as the younger son, he can get over on his brother the rights of the firstborn. Because the rights of the firstborn carried with it, in this case, there are two sons. So imagine what you do as, as a family if you have two sons is you divide the, the 
inheritance, the, the money and estate that you have, into three shares, and the older brother gets two of those. You get two-thirds of dad's estate. That's a pretty big deal. And so Jacob desperately wants to receive the rights of firstborn. He desperately wants to be recognized um, as the child of promise. And so he starts scheming on how to do that. And one day, uh, the mighty hunter comes in with nothing to show for the hunt. And so the indoorsman there has got some lentil stew cooking, and it smells good, and it looks good. And the red man wants the red stew. And Jacob won't give him any. And he's like, man, I'm about to die. I'm starving to death here. Feed me. And Jacob says, well, you know, I I tell you what, I won't give you any, but I'll sell you some. What's the price? Oh, not much. Just your birthright. Just exchange your two-thirds of the estate from dad when he dies for my one-third, and you got a deal. Now, I haven't bought soup in a while, (laughs) but I'll tell you, that's a real price right there, right? Isaac is a very wealthy man, and this would be the equivalent of, I'll tell you what, I'll give you you, um, this bowl of soup and some bread in exchange for a few million dollars. How about it? And Esau thinks about it a second, and he says, you know what? I can't enjoy the money if I starve to death, so give me some of that stew. Well, swear to me first, and the price is paid. He knows, Esau knows the promises and blessings of God that come with that birthright, but his immediate needs and the desires of his body overwhelm all of that. And he wants what he wants, and he wants it now, and God's promises be hanged. And so the scripture says, so Esau despised his birthright. Now, Jacob does not cover himself in glory in this little episode either, does he? Can you imagine getting skinned out of that much money by your brother? How much how much of that would tend to grate on you and, you know, be hard around Thanksgiving to get to back together and face one another? And later, God is going to have to teach Jacob some hard lessons about how the blessings of God really come. And they come not through scheming and not through cheating, But what I will tell you is the good thing about Jacob here in this little episode is that he realizes that some things are of great value and worth sacrificing for, and some things are not. And at this point, I'd just like to ask you, remember that question I asked you at the beginning? Remember what it was? Let me ask it again in case you forgot. What are you willing to sacrifice in order to satisfy your desires? What are you willing to sacrifice in order to satisfy your desires? And I want to turn with you one place over to the New Testament. This is one of the places that Esau gets mentioned. Uh, Go to the book of Hebrews with me. 
Hebrews chapter 12, verses 15 to 17. I want you to see this because this will give you the application of this text. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now, this is a severe, stern warning, and it's there because, like Esau, a lot of us are tempted to exchange what is of supreme value in order for the, to achieve the satisfaction of our sinful desires. And this text gives us some examples. It says that some of us would let our desires for, be, for being angry and unforgiving turn into bitterness. And bitterness destroys us from the inside. It literally eats your soul like that, like that creature in the alien movie. You seen that one? You know, the egg gets laid in the guy's mouth, it drops off, and then they go, oh, well, you know, Bob is better now. And then they're all having dinner, and oh, you know, the thing crawls out and runs off and eats everyone on board ship, right? Um, and bitterness will eat its way out of you just like that little critter that becomes that big nasty creature that takes over the, the, the spaceship. Bitterness destroys. And so that's why the text says, let no root of bitterness take root in you. That you not let anger have its way with you to such a degree that it becomes this thing that consumes you. And some of us, he says here, he gives another example. He says, some of us are willing to be sexually immoral, satisfying our bodily desires in ways that God forbids. Because what we do is we value the pleasure that we experience for a short time over pleasing God and the blessings that your sexuality brings in the context that God has outlined. And when you do that, what you've done is you've sacrificed the eternal and the reward of serving and pleasing and enjoying your relationship with God for a few moments, relatively speaking, of enjoyment. Experienced out of context and in a wrong way. Or we can simply, this is kind of a junk drawer category he throws out here, be unholy, which is kind of a general term of treating the things of God as of lesser importance than whatever you consider to be your needs and desires right now. And the supreme example of that in Scripture is Esau, who gave up his birthright, who gave up his, his right to be the covenant child the one who would receive not only the wealth of the Father, but the blessing of God the Father in exchange for a meal, a bowl of soup and some bread. 
he wanted it, and later he recognized its value and wanted it more, but because he only wanted the good consequences of repentance without actually repenting, he wasn't able to actually receive them. You know, a lot of people, I've had people actually say to me, you know, I had one guy who was a father of eight. He was a father of eight children who left his wife for a woman he met at work. And we, as as pastors and elders, sat down with this man, and we said, don't you realize what you are exchanging here? Don't you realize that you are deeply in sin? And he said this, some very dangerous words. Well, I think I'm going to do this now and I will repent later. Okay. Problem is, is that he wanted what he wanted right now. And later on, he was found it very difficult to repent because what he wanted was the elimination of the consequences of his sin not really to come back into relationship with God and be forgiven. So let me ask you again, and we're going to take communion. We're going, to, we're going to pray, and then we're going to take communion. What are you willing to sacrifice in order to satisfy your desires? Because understand, some of our desires can be good things, right? Is it good to eat when you're hungry? Yes. When you uh, have desires uh, from a, um, an erotic or an amorous perspective, those are good desires. There's nothing wrong with those, with having those desires in, in, in particular. But there's a context and a way that they're satisfied rightly and a multitude of ways to satisfy them wrongly. Amen? Are you, what are you willing to sacrifice in order to satisfy your desires? And what are you exchanging when you satisfy them? You've got to be careful because simply having a desire does not in itself sanctify it. Amen? You've got to evaluate, is this, what is ultimate here? Am I going to be pleasing to God with the decision that I make? And if I'm not going to be pleasing to God, that needs to be ultimate. I need to say, I want to please God more than I want to eat. Remember Jesus' temptation in the wilderness? I want to please God more than I want to eat. I want to please God more than I want to be in power. I want to please God more than I want to be worshipped. Did Jesus have a right to all those things? Yes, he did. But he wanted to please God more than he wanted to have his desire satisfied. And if you look at this text, well, that's what you see is that people who made the decision to have their desire satisfied now versus please God wind up paying some pretty severe consequences down the road. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, I do thank you for this text. I thank you that every part of the scriptures, every part of your word has lessons for us to learn and things that we need to grow on and ways that the truth of following you is illustrated with the lives of real people. 
Father, these are not people who are different from us. They're people who are just like us, who are tempted just like we are to exchange the spiritual and lasting for the physical and temporary. Father, may it not be true of us. May we be like Jesus who sacrificed even his life to please you rather than go with the desires of his body. And, Father, we pray that you would strengthen us with power from your Holy Spirit as he works his word into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are going to take communion. So if I could have the folks who are going to help us with that come forward. And communion is one of two ceremonies. You guys can go ahead and be seated. Uh, Communion is one of two ceremonies that we are given as part of the church and its life. Um, Part of what it means to be a church is that you, um, if you want to give a definition, what's a church? A church is the place where, where the people of God are gathered in order to do uh, three things to have the word of God rightly preached, to have the word of God protected in church discipline, and to have it be seen or demonstrated in the sacraments, or if you prefer, you know, ordinances. Uh, In baptism, we have this visible sign or visible drama of the idea that the way you enter into the church of Jesus Christ is by being buried with your sin in his death and being raised to new life in his resurrection. And in communion, what we celebrate is the breaking of Jesus' body and the shedding of his blood to make atonement for our sin, which makes that new life possible. And so we have these two dramas, really, that we participate in where the word of God is seen and where we can um, see in a visible way what happens in an inward and spiritual way in our own lives. And Paul gives instruction about communion in 1 Corinthians uh, in chapter 11. He says this, uh, beginning in verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you, Do this in remembrance of me. Now, we're going to pass out the bread uh, to everyone. And and, um, we would say in our church that there's no such thing as closed communion. In other words, you do not have to be a member of the church here to be uh, a participant in the communion ceremony. But you do have to be a member of, of God's church in that you need to be someone who has placed their personal trust in Jesus Christ as making payment for your sins and that he was raised from the dead to bring you new life. And if you've not come to that place in your life yet, we'd encourage you to just let the elements pass you by. No one's going to judge you or look down their nose at you, but you do need to be part of the family of God through faith in Christ in order to really experience the blessings of communion. 
Uh, and then later we'll pass out the cup and we'll allow everybody to participate in that who is a member of the body of Christ who has placed their trust in Jesus Christ. Uh, so if I could have uh, those who are going to help us stand, we'll pass these out and we'll wait until everybody's been served and participate together.